The reading is from the first epistle to the Corinthians, beginning at chapter 15. Brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, wherein you stand, by which you are being saved, if you keep in memory what I preached, unless you have believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures that he was seen of Cephas and then of the twelve after that he was seen of more than five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remain until this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. For I labored more abundantly than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. And this is the word of the Lord. Paul writes tonight, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received. He then goes on to declare the content of that gospel. I deliver to you, as of first importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now here in a mere two verses, Paul presents us with the heart and the focus of the Christian gospel. In accordance with the scriptures, He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures now. In accordance with the scriptures, Christ died for our sins and rose again from the dead. The gospel is expressed in two factual claims. There's a specific interpretation of these factual claims. Both the claims and the interpretation are related to a specific body of literature.
The Christian proposal is expressed as a factual claim. Namely, what things factually transpired with respect to Jesus of Nazareth. The claim of the gospel is first of all historical. Concerns things that really happened and were recorded. And if these things did not happen, nothing of the Christian message should be taken seriously. Everything in the gospel stands or falls with historical truth. A saying was common when I was a boy, although I don't hear it much anymore, that such and such a thing is gospel truth. Gospel truth. I heard that a lot when I was a child. Usually when they said that, they were lying to me, but that's beside the point. Gospel truth. That is to say, absolutely every component of the Christian faith is based on specific historical claims by the, made by those who personally knew Jesus and who could bear witness to what happened with respect to him. It's many decades ago, I remember a well-known Dutch theologian quoted in either Time or Newsweek, one of them, that if archaeologists should recover, discover the body of Jesus in a tomb someplace in the Holy Land, his faith would be intact. Well, maybe so, but not, that, not the faith of the apostles, I would have. Now, in testimony to this, Paul tonight provides us with a very early list of eyewitnesses. The risen Jesus, he says, was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. Now, that is very interesting. 500 people, more than 500 people. Of these 500 original witnesses, Paul asserts, the greater part remain to the present. Now, what does he mean, they remain to the present? The present was the time when Paul was actually writing this epistle and sending it from Ephesus to Corinth sometime in the early to mid-50s. The present, as mentioned in his epistle, sometime between the early and mid-50s, more, the, more the, the greater part, let's put that, the greater part of those 500 were still alive. They were still alive. They'd seen it. Now, if, as I believe to be the case, Paul wrote this letter in the spring of the year 55, this would be exactly one quarter century after the very important facts of Jesus' death and resurrection in the spring of the year 30. That's no great thing. Over 500 people, 500 people, more than half would still be alive a quarter of a century later. That's no great thing at all. The entire Christian message is based on their combined testimony. Those 500 individuals were not religious theorists. 
Most of them were certainly not theologians. Although some of them, specifically the apostles, later became theologians. These 500 people are not important because they were smarter or more gifted. The value of these people was that they were witnesses. Do you really know how many trials, civil or criminal trials, can produce 500 eyewitnesses? I mean, you're lucky if you can find one or two or three. 500? They were ordinary people, able to testify to what they saw and knew to be authentic. The entire Christian message is based on what those witnesses had seen and knew to be true. And this is why the proclamation of the gospel invariably takes on a story form, a narrative. We call somebody to bear witness in court. What did you see? What can you bear witness to? We don't want your theories, but what did you actually see? Tell us the story. The living story is the correct and proper form of the Christian proclamation. And that's why no matter how many dogmatic treatises, dogmatic definitions or ecumenical councils the church has, they never displace the witness. Never. Now, I admit that in the minds of some people, an ecumenical council is taken a lot more seriously than some peasant woman who said, yeah, I saw him risen. I know that. That's not as it should be. When we stand, as we do each week, and will tomorrow morning, and we proclaim the Christian faith, notice that it takes the form of a narrative. We don't stand and read in dogmatic formulas of an ecumenical council. We stand up and recite a story about Jesus. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, ascended into heaven. The proper function of dogmatic formulas and the correct purpose of ecclesiastical canons is to safeguard the gospel, never to replace it, never to replace it. What is the function of a, of a dogmatic formulation by the church? I liken it to that strip of paint, sometimes luminous paint, down the side of a highway. It tells you that this, the road ends here. Don't cross that line. It's a very poor driver who would try to drive, drive down that line. 
And you find that all the time. Find that all the time. People can talk about Christian theology and never mention the story. They think it consists in a bunch of propositions given to us by fathers of the church. Nothing replaces the story. The story is plain. Everybody can tell the story. Everybody knows how to listen to it. The witnesses are not experts. In fact, very often that's what you don't want in the witness stand is some expert. You want somebody who can say what he saw. And that's what the Christian faith presents us. Amen.